Let's turn, if you will, to uh, Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We spent about four weeks in the uh, first eight verses, primarily as uh, introduction. I'm getting a little bit of a ring on this mic, so we need to um, kind of correct that. But don't go too low, because then they won't hear me, and I can't hear myself. <laughs> okay. The first four weeks was introductory and also... Um, focused upon the foundational aspects uh, of, of the gospel and of the word of God uh, as Paul was writing to them primarily as a, a greeting and a salutation, but within those first eight verses, he includes a lot of theological and doctrinal uh, uh, foundations. And, and that is... Uh, tremendously important when you are getting ready to battle or you are battling uh, false teachers and false doctrines and false philosophies. Uh, the main one, of course, being Gnosticism, which we are going to learn more about and we're going to realize that as we learn about the Gnosticism of, of Paul's time, uh, that we deal with very similar issues today. The Gnosticism of today is, is only uh, uh, enhanced because of, of technology and because of, of the, the opportunity to see, uh, you know, uh, hear about it, see about it all, you know, in a very rapid way. But, but nonetheless, uh, the, the same problem exists today in, in a much greater way. So that's why the, that is what the importance is of us studying this, this uh, particular book. Today we want to look at prayer, Paul's prayer, and see it from the perspective from which he prays. Now I know I've entitled this Paul's Prayer for Perspective. He wants the church to pray in a similar manner, but he also wants the church to look at everything from a godly perspective, from a heavenly perspective. And so this is where we're headed in these next few verses. Let me read verses 9 through 14, and uh, we're going to look at verses 9 through 11 today. For this cause, Paul goes on to say, for this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in, a, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet or fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Who has delivered us or who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins. Now one thing that we know from our introduction to Paul's epistle to the Colossian believers is that the apostle was in prison in Rome when he wrote this letter. And what we can ascertain from the whole text that at some point Paul had been visited by Epaphras. 
Epaphras, who was one who had been, uh, who had heard the gospel uh, preached by Paul in Ephesus and came to know Jesus Christ through the ministry of Paul there and takes the gospel back to his own city of Colossae and more than likely then served as the pastor of the Colossian church. And it may very well be that Epaphras needed some counsel and advice on how to handle the false teaching that was creeping into the church. So the most natural person to turn for advice would have been God's chosen apostle to the Gentiles, who was Paul. <laughs> so this is, one of the, this is one of the main purposes for this letter. It was to encourage the church and its believers to get rid of the false teaching and to continue on with Jesus Christ. Now that's, you know, when you think about it, that's a little bit easier said than done. Because even in a, in a, in a room today, like, like we have here today, all of us to some degree have heard something, something else, something other than the gospel, and we hear it and we wonder how it fits into, uh, you know, into the, uh, uh, the way that we ourselves believe as we look at the word of God. You know, so... You know, we hear these things, so we, we have to use the Word of God to be, you know, the, the measure. We have to see the Word of God as, as, the, as the light. We have to see it as the mirror. Everything that will allow us to see what is truth, and if something else isn't truth, then we, we need to get rid of it. So this is very much what was going on with that church. And remember that Paul had never visited the Colossian church, and the believers there had never seen Paul face to face. And yet they needed him because the very ministry of the church was being threatened by the extremely dangerous false teachings of Gnosticism. So there were only two things that the Apostle Paul could do. He could write them and share and teach the word of God in letter form. And he could pray for them. Well, Paul did both. He wrote this letter, sent it through uh, Epaphras and the others that, that had come to visit him. And he said, I will pray for you. So today we're going to cover three of Paul's requests to the Lord in prayer for this church. Paul had to have been stirred deeply, you see, by, by the reports brought to him by Epaphras of the love uh, the Colossian believers displayed, as, as, as told to us in verse, uh, verses 7 and 8, uh, as you learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Uh, he came and, and let them know the, the kind of love that this church had for one another. For Paul always prayed, uh, for Paul, prayer, I should say, always helped put things into perspective. Prayer always helped put things in perspective for Paul, simply because every circumstance of his uh, whether threatening or thoughtful, thrilling or thankless, was always overshadowed by his heavenly perspective. In other words, Paul saw everything from heaven's point of view, and if we want to be even more specific, Paul saw everything from God's point of view. Now that's perspective. Part of the problem today, even in the church, is that too many people have a perspective that is more worldly-based than heavenly-based. And the reason for that has to do with how much or how little the Word of God is preached 
in churches. How little or how much the word of God is taught in churches today. And we, we talk a lot about this, but we find it to be a very important aspect of the last days. You know, we could learn a lot about that perspective that Paul had by noting the kind of things that Paul didn't pray for. Now, these, these are things that are rarely, if ever, mentioned at all that he did pray for. What I mean by that is recorded things that we can read in the scriptures, whether in his letters or in the book of Acts. So think about this for just a moment. What did Paul not pray for? Well, he didn't pray to get out of prison. At least we don't see any written prayer of Paul praying to get out of prison. Paul didn't pray to be saved from execution. We don't see that in his letters or in the book of Acts or in, in any other letters for that matter. Paul didn't pray at least in his recorded prayers for financial support. Remember he was a tent maker and he didn't want to burden the churches so he went out and he did his own work in building tents or making tents. He didn't pray about his continuing ill health. We see how progressively Paul became a little bit more blind or he wasn't able to see as well or and there were certainly probably other uh, health issues that he, he dealt with but he didn't pray about his continuing ill health. He didn't pray for the people that the Lord uh, would prosper their businesses or, or heal their sicknesses or diseases or prosper the material interests of their children or even save their relatives. We, we don't see much of that at all in his written letters. But I'm sure that without a doubt Paul prayed for these things, but they were more than likely reserved for his private prayers. And I think that that's, that's, a, that's a, a, a good thing to focus upon because we, we do have opportunities where we can tell people, well, you know, we can talk to this prayer chain or that prayer chain and say, well, you know, I've got all these burdens. Pray for these things for me. And yet, you know, there are some things that we need to pray for ourselves. Because we have and should have a heavenly perspective. Your relationship to God himself. Your relationship to Jesus Christ. Build upon it in prayer. There are some things that I, I don't ask people to pray for. Because I know that I have to take those things to the Father alone. But I have to take them. Paul had the same circumstance in that, in that respect. But what did Paul pray for then? What was his perspective as he prayed? And what perspective would he have us petition the Lord from? Well, I want you to first of all consider that this prayer that we find here uh, in, in these verses that I read to you earlier is in two parts. First, there was Paul's petition. We see that in verses 9 through 11. That's what we're going to look at today. And then there was Paul's praise. That is also part of his, of his prayer life. And that's verses 12 through 14. So we're going to look at Paul's petition here. But I, I want to begin by asking you, did you catch what Paul said in verse 9? Because in verse 9, Paul said this, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, Paul doesn't say, I pray. It's not interesting. 
He said, we pray. So there were those that he did share prayer with. But what's important is that Paul's habit of prayer was infectious. Paul was a man of prayer and he prayed and others would realize that they needed to pray like Paul prayed. And they would pray with him. If you were around Paul, you'd be caught up and brought to the throne room of God because that's where Paul would end up. At the very throne room of God. Pray. But there are three things that Paul prayed for in this little section, verses 9 through 11. The first thing he prayed for the church in Colossae was for spiritual vision. For spiritual vision. He prayed that they would know God's will. That they would know God's will. Notice verse 9 again. For this cause, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Just a very quick comment about the we, we also, since the day we heard it. Reminds us that Paul, who was, by the way, in, in house arrest in Rome, uh, had visitors, and, and usually they would go right into some kind of a prayer meeting. I, I oftentimes wonder what kind of a prayer meeting it would be with Paul. But I would always feel very sorry for the Roman guard that he was chained to. Because the Roman guard couldn't escape. He couldn't go into another room. He had to be there. So if you can't beat him, join him. And how many times would some of these Roman guards themselves come to know Christ? So he says, we do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, <laughs> the church in Colossae needed knowledge, understanding, and wisdom for a few reasons. And let me say that those three things, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, were actually words, as we'll see in just a moment, words that were used by the Gnostics. Think about that for just a moment. Yet he says that they needed knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. And they needed it for a few reasons. First, they needed to know that Satan always goes after the mind. The enemy of our faith always goes after the mind. He goes after the minds of those who don't know Christ, and he goes after the minds of those who do know Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 4 says, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. Now you think about that statement for a moment, because realize this, that most false teachings, most of these uh, Gnostic teachings, have something hidden. They try to tell you, we have a secret that others don't, don't tell you in the gospel. We can get you into a more spiritual level, but you have to come hear us. Or pay $39.95 and get the book, or whatever. He says, but we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, which of course false uh, teachers and, and cults do. 
but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. And notice this, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Good reason to pray when we want to share and, and, and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we're dealing with people whose minds have been blinded. Their minds had to be brought into captivity, just like ours did. Our minds had to be brought into captivity to Christ. As Paul would later say in the same letter, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6. When Paul said, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. What does that remind you of? What about Ephesians chapter 6? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The rulers of the darkness of this world, the spiritual wickedness in high places. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. All the enemy wants to do is wrap us up into these strongholds to keep us from the truth. To keep us from believing the truth, to keep us from preaching the truth, to keep us from living the truth. So he says, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We come willfully to that captivity. We want to be taken captive by Jesus Christ because we know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other like him. We want to be brought into captivity of our every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. We are called to be obedient to the word of God. We are called to be obedient to the work of Christ. So you see, ever since the fall of man, the mind of man has been particularly susceptible to Satan's deceptions. Did God really say that? The very statement of, of, of the serpent in, in, in Genesis chapter 3 to the woman. Did God really say that? You're not going to die. God's a liar. You're not going to die if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because when you eat the, tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, guess what? You're going to, know, you're going to be like him. You're going to be like God. Yet God had told them, you can eat the fruit of every tree. That included the tree of life. You can eat the fruit of every tree of the garden, but of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're not to eat of it because on the day that you eat of that fruit, of that tree, you will begin to die. And ever since then, man has been susceptible to that deception. And sadly, even more today than ever before. The fact was evident in Colossae that Gnostic cult was there going after the minds of the people. <laughs> Just like people that knock on your doors. It seemed like every week sometimes. Presenting a false Christ. 
presenting a false way to salvation without Jesus. And so Paul prays for true biblical spiritual light to be upon his people. Just remember, if you will, Psalm 119, verse verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word. That's our light. You know, the enemy always exploits ignorance. The enemy always exploits ignorance. And sadly today, in the church of Jesus Christ... There are a lot of ignorant, professing believers. Sadly, because we have confused the whole issue of the Word of God. If it isn't isn't in watering down the Word of God through all sorts of modern translations that that actually do not properly define and, and translate the Word of God, To the very fact that in some churches they don't even want you to bring Bibles. They'll they'll let you know what they they think. I don't want them to have anything to do with that. All I want to know is what God's will is for me. And here we have from Genesis to Revelation his will for us. So the enemy always exploits ignorance. So he prayed, Paul prayed, that they would have knowledge. Epignosis. That's the Greek word, epignosis, that they would have wisdom, interesting Greek word, Sophia. I know some of you may be, you know, have relatives named Sophia. I hope they're wise because that's what the word means, wisdom. And he prayed that they would have spiritual understanding, not just understanding, But Paul says spiritual understanding, and he uses the words sunesis pneumaticus. Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. Pneumaticus is spiritual understanding. Sunesis is understanding. And so the the Gnostics claim to have a, a special and superior kind of knowledge. And that's how they use these words. They use the same three words. Epignosis, Sophia, and Sunesis. Not necessarily pneumaticos, because that, that is the spiritual understanding that goes beyond you know, the worldly understanding. But the Gnostics claim to have a very special, superior kind of knowledge. <laughs> In fact, epignosis was one of their favorite words. It means precise knowledge or additional knowledge. Knowledge that could be added. Paul was derisive of this false claim and would not surrender the word to the cult. He says, that word does not belong to the cult. It does not belong to the Gnostics. It belongs to God. You know, the enemy tries to take so much that belongs to God and and change its meaning that, that it would mean something totally different. Take, for example, the rainbow. That's been taken by the LGBTQ MOUSE group. <laughs> but the rainbow belongs to God and will always belong to Him. And it's that which we will see surrounding the throne of God. None of us have ever seen a full rainbow like that. 
That belongs to God. It was a promise never to, to destroy the world again through flood. But that's stolen. Then it's dragged through the mud. Paul didn't surrender the word epignosis. In effect, he took it back from them and it was God's word, not theirs. Do you know how we know that? Because Paul said, be filled with the knowledge, the epignosis of his will. That's how it should be applied always. Be filled with the knowledge of his will. And then there was um, Sophia and Sunesis that were also two of the, the Gnostics' favorite words for both words have a strong connection to discernment, interestingly enough. Sophia has to do with cleverness and skill and, and the right application of knowledge. In fact, the word itself is found in, in, in the word philosophy, philosophia. While Sinesis, with the ability to look at things critically and objectively and discern between the true and the false. But in the hands of a, of, of a false teacher, it would be then to cover up the truth of what is right and what is proper and what is true. Take, for example, what we were given as the gifts of the Spirit. Paul, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 10, says, uh, and it's right in the middle of the verse, it says, to another discerning of spirits. Do you see that? That's a gift given to the church, to discern spirits, to discern that which is false or which is true, and to know the difference. We don't see that in operation today the way it should be in the church today. And once again, because we've, we, we, we've put aside the word of God. Remember what John in 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 writes. He says, Beloved, believe not every spirit. But try the spirits. In other words, test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. That's going to be one of the issues that we're going to deal with with Gnosticism. And he says, and, then, and this is that spirit of Antichrist. Whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it, is it in the world. It is time for the church to realize that God has given us gifts that we need to use in testing things that are either right or wrong, true or false. So to sum up his prayer for these things, it is important to note that the false teachers were promising the Colossian believers that they would be in the know. You can get way beyond what you're learning in the church today. You're way beyond it. You'll be in the know. You'll have a spiritual understanding far greater than anybody in the church. If you accept the new doctrines. The Gnostics and Satan, new words 
from the Christian vocabulary, epignosis, sophia, sunesis. The Gnostics and Satan knew words from the Christian vocabulary, but they didn't like to use the Christian dictionary. And so they redefined all of these terms. So Paul brought those words back to the church in their proper application and in their proper meaning. Also, the phrase in verse 9, for this cause, relates Paul's prayer uh, to what he had written in verse 6. When he writes, uh, just a few verses earlier in Colossians 1 verse 6, Speaking of the word of God, which has come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringing, bringing forth, bringeth forth fruit, as it does also in you since the day you heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. This is significant now to tie this into this prayer. You knew the grace of God in truth. That knowledge, the gnosis, uh, the word knew, the grace of God. You knew the grace of God experientially. You knew the grace of God in truth. Epaphras' report to Paul convinced the apostle that the believers in Colossae truly knew Jesus Christ and were born again. That's very much what he's saying in that one phrase. You knew the grace of God in truth. That is how we are all to understand the salvation that we have in Christ. We knew the grace, which is, of course, the undeserved favor of God in truth. What was done to bring us to salvation. But, but there was, by the way, there was a whole lot more to learn from Jesus and about Jesus. In effect, what Paul was saying was this. He says, you don't need a new spiritual experience. You don't need a new spiritual experience. You only need to grow in the experience you've already had. That's what Paul is saying. And he's saying it to us as well. You don't need a new spiritual experience. You only need to grow in the experience you've already had. I'm thankful for what I have learned about Jesus Christ in 48 years. But I don't sit back and think, well, I know, it, I, I pretty much know everything I need to know. Right? Now, I'm here to tell you that even after knowing Jesus for 48 years, I want to know more. And I want to know him more. And I want to grow more in him. And grow more in his love and his mercy, his grace, his truth. I want to know his word better. We're just not there while we walk this earth. I don't care how long we've known Jesus. To ever act as if we have arrived, <laughs> we, ain't, we ain't arrived, if I may use the word ain't properly. We ain't arrived until we walk the streets of gold and daily give praise to the Savior of our souls. The second thing that Paul prayed for 
He prayed for spiritual vision to know God's will, but he also prayed for spiritual vitality for the church. And that's connected to walking worthy of Christ. Let's look at verse 10 now. Verse 10 of Colossians chapter 1. That you might walk worthy. This again is part of his prayer. He prays that this church would walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Being fruitful in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God. If you want to be fruitful in the church of Jesus Christ... You need to, there needs to be an expressed vitality of, 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 of doing the things that honor the Lord and doing it with joy. You know, any, any, any vitality that we have for the gospel has to be filled with joy. Being a believer in Jesus Christ, we, we, we should never just kind of do what we sometimes do in our own jobs. I mean, you know, we, we get into that rut. You know, we just go... Go to work, we do our job, we go home, right? <laughs> we, 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 rut, we go into the rut, and before you know it, we're going to rot. But really, in this church of Jesus Christ, there's nothing about routine here. Nothing's routine. Every day is new. Scripture tells us God's mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. I mean, if you want to get up at the same time, do the same thing, you know, use the same mouthwash, do whatever you do, you know, the same comb, hope you clean it, whatever. You know, if you do all of these things, okay, well, that's just, you know, your daily thing. But realize this, the experiences that God wants us to, to, to have in the Christian life are, are varied and, and, and wonderful. They don't have to be the same. They don't have to be routine. Routine that leads to rut, eventually to rot. That's the, you don't want that in the church. So, that you might walk worthy of the Lord, unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. There's the knowledge again. So this point is something, if I may say, that must be hammered into the minds and hearts of every believer in Jesus Christ. It is that critical. It isn't, in other words, it isn't enough to know God's will. It isn't enough to possess God's wisdom. It isn't enough to possess God's understanding. The critical point is putting what we know into practice. We, we can be like sponges and we can take in all kinds of studies and listen to this study and that study and we can know everything from Genesis to Revelation from the standpoint of, 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 of mental capacity but unless we live it out we, we, we're just sponges we soak it all in and what God wants to do is squeeze it all out by your life lived out we are to live out the will of God. We're to know the will of God. We are to live out the will of God. The word walk, by the way, peripatesai in the, in the Greek, means that we set our lives, our behavior, and our conduct after Christ's. Walk. 
Walk means that we set our lives, our behavior, our conduct after Christ. The word describes the activities of the Christian life, the believer's life. Every time we see the word walk, the Christian's walk, do not walk after the flesh, walk after the spirit. These are, this is, is letting us know, this is how we are actively involved as a believer. It also refers to the outward life that men see. The men will see our walk. The world will see our walk. Men and women will see our walk. Whether believers or not, they will see us walking. Living, in other words. We should see that every step is pleasing to the Lord. We should see that every step is to be pleasing to the Lord. Now, when Paul says walk worthy, the word worthy there is the word axios, A-X-I-O-S, axios. And it means, and this is a really an outstanding definition, but the word axios means to have the weight of or to weigh as much as something else. To have the weight of or to weigh as much as something else. In other words, our walk is to weigh as much as the walk of Christ. If we are to walk after Christ, if our walk is, is to be patterned by Jesus Christ, our walk has to weigh as much as his walk. That's what it means to walk worthy of the Lord. That, I mean, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Our conduct is to conform to the will of God as much as the conduct of Christ. The, the will of God is to control our behavior as much as it did the behavior of Christ. So Christ is the pattern, and we are the copy. I mentioned last night, I, I said, you know, some of you ladies, you know, you do, well, mostly ladies, you, you know, you make uh, uh, dresses, and so you go out and you buy these patterns, right? And, uh, and you lay the pattern out on some fabric, and then you start cutting the fabric to match the pattern. Then, of course, you have to do all the sewing to make it real pretty and all. But you cut out the pattern to be exactly like, or you cut out the fabric to be exactly like the pattern. And, and that's what walking worthy is. Walking worthy of the Lord. But how, how is such a walk possible? Because I bet you that's what you were thinking. How can we walk like that? Well, we must be totally committed to doing two things. Two things. From the text. First of all, we must be fruitful in every good work. We must be fruitful in every good work. And I want you to take note of the word every. Every good work. We're not to do only half of what the Lord tells us to do. We're not to do only half of what he says to us. We are to bear as much fruit as possible. So that is something that we have the opportunity to, to set as, as, a, as a goal. As a goal for our life every day. I want to get up every day to say, you know, Lord, I want to do everything you want me to do. 
and I don't want to be half-hearted about it. I want to accomplish everything you want me to accomplish today. I need to surrender my will to your will. I need to surrender my walk to your walk, to the walk of Christ. I want to surrender everything. Easier said than done, isn't it? But, it? but that's pretty much what Paul is saying. Bear as much fruit as possible. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5.16. When he, when he talks about being the light of the world, he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Jesus pretty much puts out for us a challenge for our everyday life to say, Lord, I want to be able to go out and let people see my good works because my good works are to honor you. They're to bless you. They're to point to you. They're to say, Lord, I live for you. And if I'm living and acting like the world, well, the people are going to say, well, then there's a hypocrite. And you're still saying, how can we do this? I know. <laughs> how can this be accomplished? Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19, Timothy, a young pastor in Ephesus, and he has to challenge the rich in his church. Paul tells him, charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. What a challenge that is for the rich today. That they good, do good works. That they be rich in those things. And not just in the riches of the world. Paul to Titus, in Titus 2 verse 7, he says, In all things, showing thyself, and notice this, Showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine. Now this is, this is really significant. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness. Gravity and sincerity. We are to do good works. In line with having good doctrine. And living our good doctrine out. Gravity means, of course, being serious and being sincere. So that's the first thing we need to do. The second thing is we must grow in the knowledge of God. Once again, we're brought to that understanding of knowing and growing in the knowledge of God. And remember, we do not know God just because we knew or know about God. We don't know God because we know about God. I, I, I am thankful that, uh, you know, when I was growing up as, as, as a, a child, I was, was put into a Catholic school. And it was there that I learned about Jesus. And I was fascinated. I wanted to learn more about Jesus. But I, I only got to a certain level of understanding about Jesus, and it was kind of repetitive over the year when you deal with a liturgical kind of calendar. 
I wanted to know Jesus. It was many years later in college when I went beyond just the knowledge about Jesus to the knowledge of Jesus, to know Christ personally. And, well, must I say, changes your life. <laughs> it changes your life. We don't know God just because we know about God. Just knowing the word of God does not mean that we know God himself. Not in a personal and intimate way. I want you to notice again the text here, increasing in the knowledge of God. The way that we get to know God is the same way that we get to know anyone. We walk with them. We associate and fellowship and share with them. So it is with God. And the more that we walk with him, the more that we increase in the knowledge of him. The more we spend time with him, the more we read and hear what he says to us about himself, the more we read and, and, and understand the things that he writes about his son or he gives us about Jesus and about the power of the Holy Spirit and all of those things. And, and the more we increase and spend time, the more we associate, the more we fellowship, and the more we share our hearts with God, the more we will grow and increase in our knowledge of God. But don't think that you'll come to that height of, of knowledge on this earth alone. You won't. As I've mentioned, you know, for 48 years, I'm thankful to have known Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But it's not enough for me. I want to know more. I want to grow more in my relationship and fellowship with Jesus. Paul said in Romans 6 verse 4, Therefore we're buried with him by baptism into death, that like Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Walking in newness of life means that we, we're not walking like we walked in the world. We were the walking dead. Did I really say that? Well, well, yeah, you know, read Ephesians chapter 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we were alive walking, and, and you know, physically, physiologically. But God, who is rich in mercy, even while we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith in that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest, anyone, lest any man should boast. We walk in newness of life. And because we walk in newness of life, we realize that we're not walking alone. God said, I'll be with you. If we're walking with him and he's walking with us, let's grow in the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, well, we walk by faith, not by sight. <laughs> we walk by faith. We walk by trust. We walk by dependency upon this God. That we serve. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 it says this I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. A lot of what we struggle with in this life we struggle because we are not walking in the spirit but we are 
wrestling with things and, 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 and then desires come up, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, which goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 again. All those three things we wrestle with almost every day. The victory comes, with, the victory comes when we begin to walk in the Spirit. It's not a bubble that protects us. It's a truth that grows in us. The more we spend time with Jesus, the more we spend time in the Spirit, the more we spend time in the love of God and in the love of Christ, living out our faith. That's the spiritual vitality, is walking in the Spirit of God, which, by the way, He has given to every believer. Every believer. And we'll see that in just a moment. So Paul prayed for spiritual vision. He prayed for spiritual vitality, to know God, to walk worthy of the Lord. And then thirdly, Paul's prayer was for spiritual victory, to possess the power of God, to possess the power of God. Colossians 1 verse 11. Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering, with joyfulness. Part of the Gnostic heresy of today, the New Age heresy that even some churches have adopted today, there will be a release of power in your yoga positions. Walk this labyrinth. Be silent and hear the voice. You ever try to be silent to hear a voice? All I hear are all kinds of other voices. I want to hear one voice, the voice of God. And I see it, and I read it, and I hear it. <laughs> Strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, and to all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. God's power is absolutely essential for every believer and this is easily seen by asking two questions first what good is it if the believer knows God's will but he doesn't have the power to do God's will by the way we're coming to the answers that we were struggling with earlier you know the questions we were struggling earlier what good is it if the believer knows God's will but he doesn't have the power to do God's will and second how can the believer walk worthy of Christ if he doesn't have the power to walk worthy at all? So there are many in the world who believe that man has the strength within himself to become spiritually strong. You get all of these guys that are, you know, these uh, you know, positive thinkers and, and uh, you know, guys who go out and have all of these uh, uh, groups of people gather together and they tell you how that you can, you know, overcome all kinds of stuff with your own power and your own words and blah, 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 and this and that. Unfortunately, that's also sunken or uh, uh, come into the church as well. But, but you know, it, it, you're going to be spiritually strong because of what your strength is. I mean, that is a matter of will and discipline, isn't it? 
that man can apply himself and conquer the circumstances of life. This is what we're being told. And while these things could be true to some degree, man's flesh will always fail in three critical areas. Man's flesh will always fail in three critical areas. First of all, the flesh cannot become perfect. The flesh can never become perfect. It is a scientific absurdity. Why? Because we are all under the law, the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is wearing away. Everything. Our bodies. I'm amazed. Those chairs you're sitting on are 15 years old. They're made pretty good. But in another 15 years, we won't see them anymore. I hope that we won't see them anymore soon and that we, the Lord comes and takes us home. That way, but I mean, you know, if we happen to be here another 15 years, they'll be different. Why? Because they'll wear away. Some of us will wear away in 15 years. Hopefully not in 15 days. But you get the picture? The flesh cannot become perfect and it cannot do anything about perfection. No matter what the flesh does, it is still unacceptable to God because God is perfect and being perfect, he, cannot, he can only accept perfection. That is why he accepts the perfection of his son. And those who have put on Christ, God the Father sees the son, not our flesh. Secondly, the flesh cannot conquer death. Ever heard of these people that, they, you know, they, they, want, they go into what, cryogenics or whatever it is, you know, but, you know, again, their bodies or their heads free, uh, frozen, you know, and at some point they'll, they'll attach that, that head to some body, I suppose. This is nuts stuff, you know. And, and, uh, but, so they, they, they think, well, we can freeze it and then, you know, later on we can come back and no, man, when you're dead, you're dead. The flesh cannot conquer death. No matter, listen to this, no matter what the flesh does, it all, it all ends up as dead matter. That's all it is. Death has no part with God. Why? Because God is not a God of death. He's a God of life. Thirdly, the flesh cannot do what this verse says. The flesh cannot do what this verse says. It says, strengthen with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience, long-suffering with joyfulness. It cannot do what this verse says. It cannot be patient and long-suffering against all the traumatic trials and temptations of life and be joyful at the same time. It cannot. The flesh cannot. You know that great statement that we talk about uh, from time to time? About patience? The, the, the prayer of many people today for patience. Lord, Lord, give me patience and give it to me now. Huh? Well, see, doesn't work. We're not joyful in and of ourselves in the flesh over the trials that we face. Only God's power can make, first of all, only God's 
power can make us acceptable before him. Only God's power can conquer death. That is, raise us up to live eternally. Raise us up to newness of life. As believers in Jesus Christ today, we are certain that if these bodies die, we who are saved will be in the presence. Not the body. This is just a tent. But we who are the believer in Jesus Christ will be in the very presence of our Lord and Savior. At that moment that this body dies. And thirdly, only God's power can infuse enough strength in us to make us endure any and all trials with a spirit of joyfulness. By the way, never forget, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. In closing, I want you to consider the words of Paul in Romans 8, verses 5 through 9. Romans 8, verses 5 through 9. And listen carefully to to these words. <laughs> Paul says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the flesh, that, they that are pursuing the things of the flesh do mind. They have a mindset of the things of the flesh. But they that are, of the, 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 but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded, fleshly minded, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity, which is hostility. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. Before you came to know Jesus Christ, you were running about, not subject to the law of God. You kept certain laws only because you had to, not because you wanted to. And if you could, like some people do today, run red lights and do all kinds of other things, you know, go through a, you know, a 15 mile an hour school zone, with lights on and everything and go through it at 45 miles an hour as I've seen people do from time to time. They're just saying, I don't care about law. That's the flesh. Lived out today. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, that's an obvious statement. But it's a powerful one. Notice verse 9. But you, Christian, you, believer in Jesus Christ. You are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. And notice this. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ he is none of his. The fact is that if you are his his spirit dwells in you. We cannot even say that Jesus is Lord without the Spirit of God. So when we came to know Jesus Christ and we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that he's risen from the dead, God had placed the Spirit in us that we might say that and confess that. 
and express the fact that he saved us. We didn't save ourselves. So vision, vitality, and victory. These are the things that Paul prayed for this church. That they would have these things. To know God's will. To walk worthy of Christ. And to possess the power of God. And these things can only be done by and through the sovereign and supreme God of the universe who created all things by the word of his power. And his name is Yeshua. His name is Jesus. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And by the way, this is heaven's perspective. This is God's perspective. This is how we're to pray. This is how we're to look at things from here on. Not from the world, not from the worldly position, not from a fleshly position, not from a carnal position, but from a biblical, godly, and heavenly perspective.